because of the student training requirement, we've been able to locate students in those spaces. And as a result, we end up having what I refer to and others refer to as OT champions. We people, somebody sees us a social LCSW, a team leader, a, a nurse practitioner, a psychiatrist, a doctor, somebody sees and begins to see what we're able to do. And those folks then begin to create opportunities. Welcome to Heart Forward Conversations from the Heart. This is Carrie Morrison, and today we are going to explore the world of occupational therapy and how it could and should play a greater role in the American mental health system. Of course, anyone who has listened to this podcast for a while knows that I will assert that we have a mental health non-system in America because of inherent fragmentation and the inability of people to rely on consistent and sustained treatment that would lead to recovery. My introduction to the world of occupational therapy has been quite recent. In the summer of 2022, I had the pleasure to meet Dr. Deborah Pitts and Dr. Joy Agner, both from USC. The occasion was to discuss our mutual aspirations for a clubhouse in Hollywood. In the course of that conversation, as I was explaining the mission of Heart Forward, inspired by what we witnessed in Trieste and our embrace of radical hospitality as a posture to come alongside and build sustaining relationships with people, Dr. Pitts enlightened me as to the intersection of those principles with those of occupational science. That encounter led to USC placing the first of what has become several cohorts of occupational therapy interns at a Hollywood adult residential facility with whom Heart Forward is partnered. As I watch these interns come alongside the residents, and the more I learn about OT, I recognize three things. First, the importance of occupation to our identities. How is it that we occupy our time? Second, the importance of choice in making decisions about how to occupy our time. And third, the importance of goal setting within a trusting relationship to motivate human occupation. You'll hear us explore how occupational therapists could be woven into service teams within permanent supportive housing to round out the staffing provided by case managers, property managers, and clinical or medical professionals. People coming out of homelessness, particularly those with mental health conditions, benefit from an OT approach to tackling life's daily challenges and overcoming obstacles to their recovery. But enough of me, let's hear from Dr. Pitts. Good morning, Deborah. Good to see you. Good morning. It's good to see you as well. Welcome to the podcast here in December before the holidays. I'm so glad we've been able to connect. We've been talking about doing this now for several months. Yes. I'm so excited to have you here today. I just recall you and I meeting in the summer of 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we met around Heart Forward's desire to see a clubhouse in Hollywood, which we'll talk about more in this conversation. And I was learning about occupational therapy, and, and the more I have learned, the more I have felt it's really important to amplify this theme in this podcast. So I'm glad you're going to be here today to help us do that. Thank you. I hope I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. Well, um, Deborah, tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, now you're at USC as an associate professor in the Chan School of Occupational Therapy and Occupational Science, but 
I seem to recall you telling me some stories about maybe even going back to being a campfire girl, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) What's your origin story of how you got into this work, this field of helping people? When I was in junior high school, I was a campfire girl. And the group leader was an occupational therapist working for what was then called the Crippled Children's Services. And we now know that that is referred to as California Children's Services. Um, and of course, like many of these organizations for youth, we did things, volunteer things to earn. Uh, badges, badges, right? We yeah. earned beads, actually. Okay, beads. Campfire Girls was based on Indian lore, which has been a problem, you know, in terms of the contemporary world. But one of, one of the things that we did was to take care of the brothers and sisters of children who came to her treatment unit so that the parent could participate in the treatment session. If there were no brothers and sisters, we sometimes got to kind of hang out in the treatment space. And so saw stuff and doodads and things that you did with developmental delay with children. I'm sure that my need very early on was to have clarity about my future, whatever my pathology was about that, right? <laughs> Set um, your goals early. Yes, whatever I needed to do. Um, and so I decided in uh, eighth grade that I was going to be an occupational therapist. Wow. Yeah. Um, in ninth grade in the school district that I was in, you had to do a career paper. So I did it on occupational therapy. In 10th grade in the school district that I was in, uh, you did a research paper. I did it on cerebral palsy because that was the kind of uh, conditions that the my OT was doing. And um, of course, my high school counselor didn't know what occupational therapy was. And I did my own research. I told her what it was. I gave her information. When I entered into my um, college education, there were three schools that had occupational therapy at the time. I wanted to apply to the public school, uh, which was at San Jose State, and um, was not able to get in. It was what's called impacted. There were too many applicants. And so I had to wait for two years and, uh, and join when I was a junior. Um, to join it, that program of occupational yes, therapy. Yes, because there oh. was just too many applicants wow. in, for that program, yeah, even in those years. And it still, I think, probably is quite the same because there aren't that many public universities that have uh, occupational therapy education. And part of occupational therapy education is you complete practice experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you do, like many health and social service professions, and one of the ones that I did, what was at that time called a quarterway house for women, so not a halfway house, a quarterway house. It was called house. a quarterway house, yeah. I essentially did an activities program. I mean, every Wednesday evening, I went and did an activities program. After I started working, I came to understand that that was really a part of what's referred to as psychosocial rehabilitation mm. or psychiatric rehabilitation, as it became, as it more popularly is referred to as now. So that kind of put me into that space. I thought mental health would be where I would work. Ended up in my first job, I was working with adolescents in mental health and then was recruited to an adult uh, mental health program. While there, there was interest in evolving the what was called a day treatment program. And uh, this was still in California? This was in California, mm-hmm. yes. It was at the time that Fountain House was... Uh, had gotten funding from the federal government to disseminate the clubhouse model. Hmm. So what year would that have been, This was um, early 80s. Early 80s, okay. And the mental health center I had had some interest in this, and I don't know exactly how they found out about it, but we ended up uh, being able to go to Fountain House for our training. So they came and visited us, uh, which was the way it was designed. Uh, the Fountain House would come out to make sure the mental health center was really committed to making the change. Then a handful of the staff would travel to Fountain House for their training. So I was at, in the early 80s, was at Fountain House for my training. I 
worked in the, uh, the kitchen unit <laughs> at the time, uh, participated in the three-week training. There was actually another OT there. Uh, she was from an, another mental health center. And that was sort of my first introduction to after having done my field experience in my OT program. And I just felt like I was home. I, I thought this this is this is occupation peers from. I was like, it made such sense to me, uh, the design, the nature of the activities. And of course, in those years, the way Clubhouse was disseminated and the way that they presented it is they differentiated it from the clinical programs that referred to as day programs Mm -hmm. or day treatment or Mm -hmm. partial hospitalization programs. And that was exactly how the dissemination and the education, they made a clear distinction. And it made such sense to me in my understanding of activity and occupation. Especially because you had been in both of those environments at that point then. And skills. And it made much more sense to me than the clinical space in which um, I had been introduced to when I was in my first five years of working in the mental health center. And so for me as an occupational therapist, it it, it fits so well. I mean, it it fits so well, it made such sense. And I became very engaged with that. um, And we modified well, there was at the time Portals, which, Portals Rehab, which a uh, center which was had been around, mental health rehab had been around. It was one of the original seven that formed the original association, National Association, that was now referred to as Psychiatric Rehab Association. We at the center I was at then modified our day program, and we became a clubhouse. Now, this was long before the standards existed. And long the accreditation before, process. And accreditation process. Yeah. It was just around the time that the national conference got started. We were not a full fidelity, what would we think of now as a full fidelity clubhouse. But over the years, it ended up becoming much more. Um, but and again, was that in Northern California or Southern California? This is in uh, Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Through portals? Was it through portals? It was actually what's referred to, what was referred to at the time as it was originally the Glendale Mental Health Services. It became Verdugo Mental Health. And it's now part of Didi Hirsch. I don't even oh. know. It's, it was referred to as Arden House. I okay. don't even know if it still huh. is operated by Didi Hirsch. I haven't looked recently. I became very involved also in the, the National Association, um, which at the time was called IAPSERUS, um, International Association of Psychosocial Rehab. Services. That's quite an acronym. <laughs> yes, and I went to the national conferences. When I started going, there were no, there was very few OTs there. Uh, when one conference I went to, there was an OT who was getting a Young Researchers Award. It was Alexis Henry. She was actually doing research on Clubhouse. You know, I ran up to the dais and said, "Hi, <laughs> I'm, I'm an one OT." Of you. <laughs> Um, And then later on, others. Now, uh, there's a much more participation and presence of OTs in that organization. But um, and of course, that organization, in some ways, has lost its presence because there's so many other entities that have emerged. I mean, I feel like I grew up at a time and became I grew up as a practitioner professional in this practice space of sort of counter clinical present, clinically informed services repositioning uh, professionals um, in relationship to peer support specialists, the growth of the language and the ways of thinking about recovery. These are all things that were a part of this entity, this organization and the uh, organizations that supported it. So how did you find your way then to USC to actually teach so I, from practice into so teaching? I, well, I was at, well, I was at the mental health center. I took a master's in business from Pepperdine Um certainly was going to pursue a master's. I could have gone MSW route, uh, perhaps, or uh, MBA, or public health. Um, I decided to go the management route, not the clinical route. And so I took my master's in business. Um, I went from there to 
West Los Angeles VA, where at the time was the West Coast version uh, under the auspices of Dr. Robert Liberman, who was a well-known psychiatrist who had promoted the idea of rehabilitation approach to psychiatry, which got called psychiatric rehabilitation. Um, and so I was there for about 10 years and a part of that uh, research group, practice group. Um, actually, it's where I met Courtney Harding and le- first learned about Trieste and, you know, um, had a lot of opportunity because he was very well known in that. Um, and then from there, after being there for about 10 years, I had decided to pursue a, a doctorate. Um, first, I looked at a practice doctorate in public health, but had met the faculty uh, at USC member who was already teaching the mental health. They were looking to recruit an additional mental health faculty. I said, let me come. I'll do my PhD. And and so I've been there since 99 and took me a while, but it was a long birth, but I finished the PhD uh, after about eight or nine years, which is you know, while I was teaching part-time, and um, had an opportunity to do that at what was at the time called The Village, MHA Village. Um, And we've done a podcast about The Village. Sure. So I had a chance to meet, you know, um, all of the initial players there, and then I've just continued to uh, teach. And, I mean, many of the mental health OTs that are, of course, practicing in Los Angeles have come through USC. USC, not all. We have several OT programs in the uh, greater Los Angeles area now, but um, several have come, and I mentored them either in their field experiences or their other practice experiences. I hear you are kind of a legend out there. So let's talk about some terms, because a lot of people listening to this uh, podcast, this this is kind of unusual topic. Uh, And, you know, even for me, a year and a half ago, it was new. You mentioned, and this comes up in your bio on the USC website, that you're considered an expert in psychosocial rehabilitation. I have learned that part of what kind of characterizes what's unique about the Trieste method is it leans towards psychosocial rehabilitation as opposed to clinical interventions. Both are necessary. But define for people listening, what is psychosocial rehabilitation? Psychosocial rehabilitation, as I've come to understand it, emerged as a, in some ways, as an alternative to the clinical frame and the limitations of the clinical frame. That the perception is that if you think clinically, if you're primarily thinking about clinical recovery, for example, or clinical interventions, you're focused on the symptoms and the symptom remission, you're also more likely to think, make it take up a, um, a biological theory of the phenomenon that we're talking of, of people who are served in these. So uh, psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you're going to think of uh, these as medical conditions, mm-hmm. not experiences that human beings have. So to some degree, there was an effort to balance what had become a medical or biomedical uh, psychiatric perspective on the phenomenon, psychosis, schizophrenia, most prominently bipolar disorder, to some degree major depression, but certainly a prominent feature in these services are folks with psychosis um, and labeled with schizophrenia. And this idea that medicine is not sufficient, psychotherapy at the time was very prominent, um, was is not sufficient, although not all everyone would agree with the notion that psychotherapy now that psychotherapy isn't helpful. People needed skills, hmm. 
to live. People needed spaces that were designed in particular ways to provide support. Um, and so the idea of a rehabilitation approach, which sometimes the way this is explained is it comes out of the rehabilitation part of the label, hmm. comes out of the rehabilitation for people with physical disabilities. The person has a self and a life beyond the condition, and we have to address that. We can't just address the condition. So a couple other terms, and I know this must be very important because USC, it's a school of occupational science and occupational therapy, which is a long thing to have to say. But what is the difference between occupational science and occupational therapy? And why is that important? Yeah, the cleanest difference is that occupational science is the discipline, the scientific discipline that can inform the therapeutic work that's done in occupational therapy. So one is sort of the science and one is more the practice in some ways. Okay. In some ways. That's a, maybe a little blunt for my occupational science colleagues and occupational therapy colleagues, but it probably is the easiest way. So let me ask you this, where we have not really seemed to be embraced at perhaps the the, the level occupational therapy should be are in mental health settings. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that I think about visiting a, a friend in Hollywood who, who had been homeless. It was my first time in a IMD, an Institute for Mental Disease. And what I saw was a lot of what I would call meaningless activity happening there. And he could get points if he would go to a craft class or an anger management class or a, these different classes, which meant nothing to him. But if he got these points, he could get Cheetos, right, or something like that. So... Can you talk about how perhaps in mental health settings it's been misused and what the real potential is? I'm not sure if I would say occupational per se has been misused. And I'm not to say that that was probably not but, occupational therapy that I but, saw there. That was just well, activity. But we have we are complicit. I think it, our profession is complicit, uh, not contributing to the design of meaningful meaningful days for people. The things that influence some of these settings has nothing necessarily to do with the practitioners and having everything to do with funding, funders, payment sources who purchase a, or pay for a particular minute of time and where payment sources require change in a particular way. Um, and so they end up paying for a group that may not have meeting, but it can be defined. Okay? Yep. And it's one of the one of the challenges with the clubhouse. I mean, the clubhouse is not a group. It's an all day set of activities in which people are coming and they're coming and going. And, and it's hard to then describe and define and document what actually happened for each person. Okay, because it's so dynamic, and it's so open. And the degree to which our payment sources have been reductionistic and focused on symptom change, emotion regulation change, as opposed to just participation, engagement, and, and the level of detail that's required to document for payment, all health professions have responded to that, as have occupational therapists when they're in those spaces. When we look at the occupational therapy workforce in the United States, only about when workforce surveys are done by our national association, there are substantially fewer occupational therapists practicing the mental health space, but we're small but strong. Mm -hmm. There has been um, histories of our 
not doing well even over those 70, 80, 100 years that we've been a profession, right? Where are the activities were not meaningful? They were done. People used to talk about basket weaving was mm-hmm. the joke about mm-hmm. that was offered at part of psychiatric hospitals. People did basket weaving. They didn't do anything meaningful. Um, so this is not a new – the use of activity as being meaningful or not is not new. Um, I think what occupational science brought to the question of occupation, though, was a more – complex understanding of what we mean. And meaning is only a feature of it. So people don't just need meaningful activities, although they do need meaningful activities. They need activities that happen at times in the day that will engage them. And so it's not just the meaning of the activity, but it's the nature of the activity. Is it a good match for their thinking, their physical capacity, uh, their communicative capacity, um, the degree which their condition may be compromising them? Um, So I can see what you just described. I see students in those spaces, talking with them about what it what are they seeing? What are they thinking about what they're seeing? What would that look like if they were going to make a difference? What are the real barriers to making the difference that have to do with funding and opportunities? Yeah, so I, I, one of the conversations we had that predated today as we prepared, you, you mentioned um, how in our U.S. system we have, in a sense, abandoned social connections and social relationships in exchange for like the quick fix intervention. And those are probably hard to measure, but how do you actually truly engage a person in what they want to do to occupy the time until you know who they are and what excites them. Well, and I think part of the challenge, and this is not new, I mean, people have written about this, is the the tension between medical model funding streams and social model funding streams for want of a better, you know, comparison. And social model funding streams are looking at, are, are not based on, they generally pay less per visit or per day because they're not tied to a specific medical condition. So this has to do also with the way our healthcare system has defined what it means to be treat, to be serving people. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing something like the clubhouse, that has always been, had less payment than a day treatment program. So a day treatment program got paid way more to do what they got to do than a clubhouse. I mean, the mental health center I worked at, we had day treatment funding, we had socialization funding, and we had some work. And the socialization funding was a third of what we would get if we were treating the condition, right? And yet the the challenge the person has wasn't necessarily managing their condition. It was more about being able to engage and participate. So the payment rates don't are equivalent because it's not seen as treatment. It's seen as recovery-oriented peer support specialists, their salaries are significantly different than others. So we we make these judgments about what is worth paying for, and that has effects on the nature of the services that we have and who you can hire to do it, how long people can work there because their salaries may be lower kind of thing. And so that's a real challenge. And for occupational therapists, because we get paid very well in many other settings, many of our occupational therapy colleagues are looking for a certain salary rate. And that's a challenge in Medicaid, even Medicaid as a medical model or the degree to which it funds non-medical model services, Medicaid payment rates are significantly lower than Medicare payment rates. So 
it, it's not surprising that OTs working in nursing homes are making more than OTs working in Medicaid funded. So I so I want to put a pin in that observation and and at the end when we kind of wrap up your wish list for what you would like to see changed in the future, I think we would return to that. Let's kind of shift now to looking at what I would call the ecosystem of housing in the LA region, and this would apply throughout the state of California as well, for people living with mental illness in our community. There uh, are either going to be in permanent supportive housing or maybe subsidized housing or board and care homes, adult residential facilities. And I have come to really appreciate that presence of OTs in these spaces would be really additive mm. to helping mm -hmm. people reclaim their lives, re recover their lives, et cetera. I kind of chuckle when you hear the description, for example, that people coming out of homelessness moving into permanent supportive housing then are experiencing robust wraparound services. <laughs> it's like, where are they? Why is it that we don't have more OTs in, let's just talk about the supportive housing space, because what are all the potential things OTs could help people learn and, and adapt to as they came out of homelessness into into being housed again. Yeah, I guess the way that I've come to over the last you know ten fifteen years of thinking about permanent supportive housing and our role in permanent supportive housing um, for people experiencing homelessness, because part of the challenge we have is that there are two histories in housing. There's what's called supported housing and what's called permanent supportive housing. Supported housing had to do with people labeled with psychiatric disabilities moving out of board and care homes into their own units. Permanent supportive housing comes out of the homeless uh, unhoused service sector. Over the years, what's happened is those have merged and permanent supported housing has become the label for it. But it also means the eligibility has been focused on homelessness. So we still have many people living in residential care facilities, board and care homes, who do not get to access any of these permanent supported housing units because they are not experiencing homelessness. And while it used to be that that was considered at risk of homelessness so that they were eligible, that's no longer the case. So we're paying attention to profoundly complex individuals, serious situations that are on the street and moving them into housing. And we shouldn't be surprised that's not easy to do. Um, but we have less opportunity available to the folks in the in the boarding care space labeled because they're housed. Right. And which I think is a, a terrible situation. People are not in their in the right spot. They're that not matches in the right spot. Their needs they would have to be homeless for several months in order to get. But when I think of the permanent housing space for folks previously experiencing homelessness that are transitioning in, I've come to think of our our role as an occupational therapist in sort of three domains. One is unit maintenance, maintaining their tenancy. You know, and this is about keeping the unit in good repair. Uh, meeting the lease requirements associated to that, another domain, um, and navigating relationships with the property manager in reasonable ways, that kind of stuff, although other providers can do that as well. The Another space is the um, self-management of chronic medical conditions uh, or behavioral health conditions. So taking the medication, taking medication when it is, understanding what the medication is. Again, there are other providers who can do that, but our knowledge is necessary for strengthening our, the system's response. And then the third broad area is activity engagement, really addressing the boredom and isolation that happens once you're housed because you no longer then have the survival activity that you've been engaged in. 
in order to get engaged, you have to bring activities into your home or you have to go to those activities. So that requires a level of of responsiveness on your part to do it. And there's nobody in your unit to say, hey, come on, Deborah, you want to watch television with me now? Or do you want to, right? Should we go to the library? Should we go uh, to the farmer's market? Get out of your your apartment. Yeah. And in terms of occupational therapy knowledge, then that we bring to those three domains, I think the big gap in housing is the nature of the cognitive capacity that many people have. People that are being transitioned from the street into housing have often present with uh, behavioral health disorders, both psychiatric, both mental health and substance use disorders, many of which component of that is cognitive limitations, at the very least mild cognitive impairments. You then have many folks who have been um, assaulted. They may have um, been unconscious, so they have at the very least mild traumatic brain injury of some type or mild cognitive appearance associated to that. You then have this long period of dwelling in a particular way. Habits have been established, routines have been established, and just moving into a different space does not result in a change in my actions and my behaviors. Our occupational therapist's understanding around habit um, mm-hmm. habit and how habits form, and the way we think about habit is being very influenced by the context. So how are Where's the refrigerator? Where, what's in my refrigerator? Do I even know what's in my refrigerator unless I open the door? You don't. Um, so those kinds of things. So habits, we consider ourselves experts in cognition, particularly what's called functional cognition. Um, and so we have a way of understanding the behavioral error that you might see. It's not because the person's trying to be a pain in the ass. They're not being willful here. This is a cognitive limitation and the way their brain is processing what's going on and their ability to generate solutions. So they need us to be there for cognition. I guess the other would be our valuing our understanding of activity as a uh, aspect of health. So I'm thinking about the various different PSH communities that I have visited. As I mentioned, I'm on a Triple H committee, been watching these new communities unfold in Los Angeles and We've got big providers like PATH, People Assisting the Homeless, and the People Concern, and LA Family Housing, and others, you know, kind of the the mega managers of some of these um, communities. Why are we not seeing more OT involvement? Is it a cost issue? Well, it's... It's partly a cost issue. I think it's also partly the way that housing evolved as a service was that case managers became the primary provider in those settings. So case managers and case managers are amazing. They have a huge job. They are job. amazing. Yeah. They have a they have a very huge job. And they have a job that's often beyond even their their experience and expertise. Because housing is not a treatment space, the presence of uh, other types of providers has been less evident. Mm-hmm. And when they do bring other providers in, it's seen as a licensed mental health professional is who you need. You need someone to work on the person's mental health, managing their symptoms, that kind of stuff. The next group that seems to be, next provider that seemed to be meaningful was nursing. So nurse practitioners, other types of nurses, because of the comorbid medical conditions that people had. Very reasonable. We would argue that what's missed in that package, which we value those partnerships is the knowledge we bring around functional cognition. Because in in order for the nurse to make sure the person takes the medication, they need us to understand the functional 
right. cognitive aspects and habits and routines. Nurses are amazing as well in terms of their understanding, and they've built a knowledge about that. But we ha- we built an expertise in them. So I'm aware that there are some programs in the county office of diversion and reentry. Uh, also, I think Project 180, which addresses people coming out of the criminal justice system, have been um, accessing the OT discipline in those spaces. What are they doing in those contexts, and why are we seeing that? happening there and not so much in the PSH space? We've been very successful in the Los Angeles area of through our student training programs across many of our uh, universities, West Coast, Cal State Dominguez Hills, um, Stanbridge, um, uh, USC. In because of the student training requirement, we've been able to locate students in those spaces. And as a result, we end up having what I refer to and others refer to as OT champions. We people, mm-hmm. somebody sees us as social uh, LCSW, a team leader, a, a, a nurse practitioner, a psychiatrist, a doctor, somebody sees and begins to see what we're able to do. And those folks then begin to create opportunities. So Project 180, for example, over the last four or five years. And can you one, describe what Project 180 is? I, I know I Project just... 180 were, is a part of special services for groups. Special services for groups is one of the largest community-based social service providers, I think, in the Los Angeles area. They cross many of the regions. Um, and it's this is only one part of what they do is is uh, Project 180, but it does work with, uh, for, it's a forensic mental health service or justice involved, what's referred to as justice involved. Um, and they provide both uh, uh, intensive outpatient services, I believe, they also have residential programs linked to what's called the conditional release program or CONREP program, and then they also have permits for housing. We just had a couple of champions who decided they wanted OTs there, and they've bought with over a four-year period. They ended up hiring at one point about 10 OTs. I don't know what the current uh, number are. And what's interesting there is we now have an OT who's a supervisor. So we have, once you're there, it's not only social workers that become supervisors, not only nurses that become supervisors, but other professionals can move into those spaces as well. Um, so that's been really successful. What about the Office of Diversion and Reentry, ODR programs? That's what funds most of what um, Project 180 does, okay. uh, is, my, is my understanding. So that's, that would maybe explain why we're seeing the elevation of this occupation or this uh, profession in those spaces, because they're using something other than Medicaid dollars. It's very possible. Um, we've had some success in other spaces. The housing space doesn't use Medicaid dollars much. That's the thing because they have HUD for the funding. And the case managers currently are funded by the, the LA County Department of Housing for Health so that you don't have a lot of Medicaid funding uh, like you do with a full service partnership or the clubhouse. You just don't have that. It doesn't mean that they can't use that, but often that's not what's being used for the the case management services. I can't say for sure that it was a difference in funding. It could be. It's certainly when you meet with the folks who are the, what we refer to as RT champions, it's their advocacy, internal advocacy within their agency that has resulted in that. I had a conversation with one of those champions, Emily James, at Step Up um, last week because she has definitely been converted and and will bring in students into the PSH space at Step Up. I'm hoping that anyone who's involved in case management listening to this would see the potential and start to maybe even ask questions. I'm thinking of a a visit a few months ago, I went down to Long Beach to um, Century Housing has the, is it the via? Century Villages. Century Mm -hmm. Villages. Mm -hmm. And they have a full-time occupational therapist there on staff. And 
she was mentioning, I was asking, like, how do you interact with the case managers in that uh, pretty large residential community? And she used an example where somebody might have a problem with hoarding. They're hoarding in their unit. Okay, so in a, and I hear about this happening a lot in different PSH communities. The case manager is not going to know how to um, come alongside that resident to ascertain how are we going to address this issue. So she relied upon the OT in that in that space. That just seems so logical. Well, yes, I would say uh, occupational therapists are working in the in the hoarding in hoarding practices in many places in the U.S. and in North America, and for sure. Um, and particularly with older adults, I would say we're not the only provider. I think there's a, a part of what we do. You have hoarding is such a very unique issue that it requires probably multiple providers to be in play, like a team approach. Yes, it really does re- require that. Um, I think the one thing that occupational therapists we're used to doing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming alongside people. Yes. What happens is in the permissive housing space, there is this privileging of doing it on your own. Everyone wants to do it on your, everyone believes you're supposed to do it on your own. There's this tension between for on the provider side, do I do for, do I do with, or do I let the person do it alone? Mm-hmm. There are certain ways of thinking about how to make that decision. And one of them is through a functional cognition lens. I would argue that we don't do enough for and we don't do enough with. Hmm. That we we are so eager to have the person maintain their autonomy and their independence. It seems like an American thing. <laughs> and it's even within the occupational therapy profession, right? Independence, you know, there is this idea that independence is a, a false. We're n- none of us are independent. We're all codependent um, in terms of relying on other people for things. The case manager to resident ratio, the expectation of what the case manager is supposed to do. It's kind of like when your doctor, you go to see your primary care doctor and your doctor urges you to be, I urge you to eat well. I urge <laughs> you to get active. Yes. I urge you. Or they do their um, uh, brief motivational interviewing with you, right? Um, that That's supposed to be the answer to all things motivation, right? We're just, we're looking at folks, we're working with folks who many will be able to do that. You will have some who can move right off of the street, take up their unit practices, take up their activity practices, take up their health practices with very little than rather with the the, the case manager's weekly check-in. But for everybody else, they need more services and more support. And that's where I think we can provide support to the case manager for them to do their work. They're being asked and held accountable for things that they shouldn't be held accountable for, in my view. It's just too much. It's too much Um, in terms of numbers and volume. And the thing that's really unique about housing, it is not a treatment space. They don't have to talk to you. The residents don't have to talk to you. Now, yes, they sort of agree when they move in through the coordinated entry system. Now with DHS, the Department of Health Services, Housing for Health Case Man, Funded Case Manager, that they will meet with the person. But trying to track them down and find them, sometimes it works really well, and then you, they go missing. And like, well, what happened, right? And yet the case manager constants to be held. There are ways for occupational therapists, because of how we focus, because we're very comfortable doing with, we understand that doing for and doing with often is the way in which you move, helping people do it on their own. And we're willing to do it for much longer, because oftentimes what our colleagues do is they fade too soon, 
I love the analogy of the doctor, and I'm also thinking of um, <laughs> uh, like a, what a personal trainer is. Oh, what is a personal trainer? Like, I know I should be doing work to uh, strengthen my core. Intuitively, I know that's supposed to be done. But if I could have someone be there with me, watch me, check my technique, and then break into a new habit, it has to become a habit. That's like an epiphany for me and how you describe that. Yeah. So Deborah, how are you and your colleagues advocating in this space to elevate OT as really a needed component of the whole ecosystem of people living with mental illness, whether they're in board and cares, permanent supportive housing. What is your hope and how are you trying to make the case for this? Uh, well, because I'm in the workforce development education space, uh, one of the main ways I've been trying to do it is by bringing our students into those spaces. And these are spaces where they're not OTs, and that means they're being mentored by peer support specialists, by social workers, by case managers, and then trying to educate those providers as well as the organizations that they work with so that the students get the right experience, right? So that's one. And have been doing that for a really long time. And we've had, I think, really good success. One of the opportunities we had at USC was that we had our a post-professional doctorate program, which immersed the student in a full year at the site. And that allowed for a stronger understanding appreciation than the other kinds of shorter experiences that we have. So that was an important. Um, so that's one space is through just bringing students to that space. I've been involved with the California Behavioral Health Planning Council about 10 years. Um, but prior to that, I was introduced to them in the early 2000s and began to work at trying to advocate for um, expanding uh, the presence of occupational therapy. So I had presented to a couple of their, what at the time was their personnel committee. I We worked with one of their staffers to try to do some projects that perhaps would expand that. Um, um, didn't get a lot of movement on that. Then when I joined um, when I joined the California Behavioral Health Planning Council, one of the things, because it's a public meeting, um, I used to would joke with the students when I would talk to them about this is I would always use the word occupational therapy sometime in the meeting so it would be in the meeting notes. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's great. You know, those and those things are bearing fruit. Um, they're bearing fruit at the state level. Um, uh, my my state association has had some good success. We've had some really good recent conversations, and it's possible that within the next few months we may actually finally secure. OTs as de designated as licensed mental health professionals in the specialty mental health Medicaid and licensed practitioners of healing hearts in the drug medical ODS system of care. So we might be successful in there. We just are talking with them and hopefully that will be successful. Um, and then I can retire. Um, <laughs> I've made myself present and keeping the conversation uh, going. Um, and when there is an opportunity for feedback, so like when all through all the CalAIM movement, whenever they were doing workforce development issues, I would spread the word. You need to t make sure that you respond to this, that occupational therapists need to be included um, whenever it was about workforce stuff. So I've done that. Um, the University of San Francisco has a workforce, uh, mental health workforce effort that never has included occupational therapists. So I've said every single time that they are speaking or presenting their findings, I'm saying, I'm sorry, 
you're not talking about occupational therapy and we're in this space. It's yeah. not like we're not in the space. You are we're, you are relentless. And that uh, yes, is, yeah. yeah. And and hopefully this podcast will add to your <laughs> list. I wanna bring this to a close with one just um I hope you can answer this question because I think we've talked so much about the the science and the application and the policies and all this. Can you bring us home? by maybe sharing a story in your life, in your career, could be in the early days, could be later, where but for the presence of an occupational therapy, someone's life might have gone in a different direction. Can you just tell one human story that this shows the power of the patients and the coming alongside notion of OT that we could end this podcast with? Uh, that feels pretentious, Um so, because uh, I'm never, I'm never wanting to say we're the only one in play. We just need to be there. We need to be a part of the, of the services. Um, so in PSH, case management is important. Mental health professionals are important. We just need to be there. We have things to bring. We have, uh, we have gaps. We can fill the gaps. Um, so I don't know that I would have a specific story of that because it, that's not the approach that I've taken. Right. It's um, a team approach. It's. I just think we belong there um, and that we have knowledge and we have expertise that can address some of the the things that are not there. Some of our students have had some extremely wonderful, successful opportunities where in, a, in the PSH space, for example, the team was thinking about this person needing to go to what they call a higher level of care. I really don't know what they mean by that because there is nothing called a higher level of care. There are spaces that require less cognitive demands and less performance requirements, but that's not a higher level care because there's actually less care in a board and care than there is in some of the PSH spaces. And, you know, she worked with him for over about eight or nine months, um, profoundly um, symptomatic in terms of his psychosis, had particular preferences, but she spent time with him. So it was the time, it was the listening to his experience and using that, not seeing his psychotic ideation as a problem for the medicine to fix, but a way for them to figure out how to manage it and work around it and increase his level of participation. Trying to, we, we specifically targeted, the team was bur felt burdened by doing some of the things for him. So we, she worked on what could she offload to him or to her by bringing uh, opportunities to that. So he was able to assume some responsibility for things that the team was doing. So those are ways in which in the PSH space that we've had student have, have had our um, post-professional doctoral residents or our fieldwork students um, be able to make those kinds of changes. That works. I, I love that. And I love the team approach because of, of just the interdisciplinary nature really of, of come of of bringing these services into these housing environments. Um, thank you for being so generous with your time and for um, teaching me so much about this profession. And we're, we're excited, Heart Forward um, hosts OT interns at a local board and care in Hollywood where we're privileged to do radical hospitality. And the residents love the students and they're so sad when they go uh, after 10 weeks. And then there's usually about a four to six week hiatus and they're welcoming them back in January. So we're delighted to be in partnership with USC. And I hope you can consider me to be one of your OT champions. We do. Okay. We thank do. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Deborah. Have a wonderful rest of your day. 
I am happy to join the OT Champion Club, and I hope this podcast helps to plant the seeds of possibility of how occupational science could be amplified as part of the service wraparound in various settings, in our homeless services ecosystem, in adult residential facilities, in our jail settings, and in post-incarceration recovery. And speaking of jail, I am hoping to secure an interview around that topic for our next episode of this podcast. Please subscribe to ensure that you are notified and check back soon for the next episode. Thank you for supporting and sharing this podcast. And thank you to my production partner, Aaron Stern and Verdugo Sound, who makes this possible. I'll see you next time.